This is the Candeo Equipping Podcast. Well, good evening, everybody. I'll interrupt your small talk so we can get started with my best uh, projected voice. It's good to be here. I, I was uh, thinking that the elders were going to outnumber everyone else before too long, but a lot more people showed up. So this is great. Uh, thanks for your faithfulness to something like this. I, um, I really believe that, that you being here tonight is really you responding to a call on your life. I mean that, that as part of the body of Christ, there's certain people that would come to something like this maybe more willingly than other people. And uh, it's probably how God designed us. And, um, you know, maybe it, we like to dig into theological and doctrinal, doctrinal issues in a way that, that other people find a little more taxing. And uh, I don't want to speak for anybody, but I, I enjoy something like this. So it's kind of something I, I look forward to. And I do believe that that is something that God blesses. So um, we're here together, and um, I listened to the last... Two weeks ago now, the last podcast, I wasn't able to be here, but um, boy, that was a great job by Mark and a great attendance and participation, and you could feel, even on the podcast, just the delight that everybody was having, I thought, so um, that was good. Um, Tonight, we'll be looking at two more of these overarching issues that are found in Hebrews, as well as as elsewhere in the Bible. And um, the two that we'll be looking at are apostleship and priesthood, okay? Um, I thought about doing something on the rest of God because that's also included in Hebrews 3, 4, and 5. Um, but there's just so little time, really. So we're going to cover those two topics, those two themes. And um, just by way of introduction, I had thought a little bit about what it is we're trying to accomplish here. And uh, because I wanted to know what target to be shooting at while I was preparing. And, and I had a conversation with my 23-year-old son the other day. And uh, it was, he was showing me some of his schoolwork. He goes to ISU. And uh, he, he's a uh, software engineering major. And he's also math minor. And so he was doing some abstract algebra and doing some proofs. And so he was explaining to me why in the world he would have to prove that there's an infinite number of prime numbers. That seems intuitively true to me. If there's an infinite number of numbers, then infinite number of prime numbers. He said, no, you don't get that for free at my level. (laughs) So at his level, and he'll be graduating in May, uh, even then, you don't get that for free. And that's kind of similar to what we're doing here. There's certain things that we run into in the Bible, and um, maybe other cultures, other periods of time, uh, they would have kind of got it for free because they lived it and uh, spoke in certain ways about those topics. Uh, but we have to work a little bit harder. So, And we're kind of doing that for the whole church. So um, let's pray for God's blessing on that tonight. So God, we are, are just humbled to be here, so thankful for a room like this. Uh, it's safe here, and... and um, There's a lot of friendly faces, and we know that your presence is here among us. You are uh, just spiritually uh, with us and even empowering us to understand your word. We ask that you would illuminate the scriptures to us, that we would know uh, the truth of what the author of Hebrews has to say. But God, don't leave us with just cold Illumination. We want to feel a, a, and also a, a light and a heat. We want to be transformed and propelled into ministry, and we want to minister to the body of Christ and to the world. And so, we ask that you would do that for us and and among us here tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin uh, Hebrews three. And I'll read the opening. I won't read through all three chapters, but we're in Hebrews, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. The section that we're covering is three chapters, 3, 4, and 5. And like I said, we won't read through this. 
um, we won't really read much of it at all. But we do find in, in uh, chapter 3, right in verse 1, these two themes, these two uh, issues, uh, overarching issues in Hebrews that we have to understand to really uh, be edified by this passage. So Hebrews 3, and I'll just read uh, the first few verses here. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And that just kind of sets the stage. There's this comparison, you see it really clearly, with Moses, which takes some explanation, and we'll, hopefully we'll get there. Uh, but we're focusing first then on verse 1, and just that statement that Jesus is the apostle of our confession. That's the only place in Scripture that the term or the title apostle is, is uh, given to Jesus. And the, the word uh, is a transliteration, like other words we use, baptism and presbyter. We, we use those words that are Greek words just transliterated into English. They sound very similar. You know how you know what the Greek word is? You just add OS to whatever word you're on. No, it's not true, but kind of true. So the basic uh, gloss or, or definition of, of apostolos is messenger or one who is sent, okay? Maybe a delegate. So messenger, one who is sent, a delegate. And it's interesting because not only is this the only time that title is applied to Jesus, but it's the only time it's mentioned in the book of Hebrews explicitly. So you don't see any other verse in Hebrews that uses that word. Interesting. The audience, the original audience of this likely would have had that term for free. They would have hit this term and they would have lived in a time when apostles walked or had recently walked around and, and uh, that age was, was uh, their age. And also this word is not just a biblical word. It was cultural word that you'd use in all kinds of situations to refer to a messenger. So that's the background of this word. It's, it's got a broad spectrum of use, and um, its specific use in Christianity even has a broadness to it, okay? So they're probably familiar with 12 apostles who Jesus named as apostles. But there are also other individuals referred to in the Bible that uh, were called apostles. So Galatians 1.19, and I'll I'll probably go through these quick, so um, if you have a piece of paper, you could take notes. Uh, we probably won't turn there, but Galatians 1.19 mentions James, the brother of Jesus, as an apostle. Acts 14.14 14 mentions Barnabas as an apostle. 1 Thessalonians 2 mentions Silas as an apostle. Romans 16, a little bit more disputed, based on the translation you have, um, likely is referring to a couple and hard names to pronounce, Andronicus and Junia um, as apostles. And then there's this curious reference in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12 to super apostles. Uh, so the, the word was not just used for those 12 uh, who were considered to hold the office of apostle, including Paul as well. So if you put that together, the fact that it's only used once 
but it has a broad familiarity, you can imagine that this statement would have had an impact on this original audience. So a question I asked myself then, well, is it unique to the New Testament, right? What do you think? Would that word be unique to the New Testament, this Greek word, apostle? What do you think, Jake? <laughs> yeah, the Greek, it's, it's a setup. <laughs> it's a setup. Uh, it's not unique completely. It kind of is. The only other time, so these, uh, one significant thing about Hebrews is uh, that the author often quotes from the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. So an interesting thing is that in the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word's only used once. And it's, and it's a kind of a throwaway term. It's, it's about a messenger, but not a divinely appointed situation. But the, the verb form of the word is used ubiquitously. It's over 700 times used in the Old Testament Greek translation. So it's not totally unique to the New Testament. Even, the, again, this audience, probably familiar with the Septuagint, would have been familiar with that word. One thing we like to do um, with these evenings, one thing that uh, we've kind of uh, projected out and, and thought would be very helpful would be to look at different views of some of these issues, okay? To see kind of a uh, spectrum of understanding of what some of this stuff means. And I thought Mark did a great job of, of laying that out and I wanted to do something like that. So. Um, Regarding apostleship, then, the first thing that came to my mind was the Catholic view, the Roman Catholic view of, a, of apostolic succession. I don't know if you're familiar with that term or that idea, but um, it's a distinctiveness of, of uh, the Catholic view that centers around this understanding of the apostles and uh, a, an apostolic succession. So I had to had to study this a bit because that seemed odd to me since I don't know of any Catholic apostles today, right? And I read the words apostolic succession. But the idea is actually that the apostles endowed bishops with a kind of apostolic authority. So the two aspects that I'll highlight um, regarding that succession are infallibility and authority, infallibility and authority. And um, the belief of the Catholic Church goes something like this. Uh, the church-ordained bishops are thought of as endowed with the infallible uh, gift of truth, okay? So in order to, to uh, read and teach Scripture, they're gifted with this infallibility. It, the Catholic Church notably states that heretics throughout the history of the church were famous for basing their false beliefs on scripture alone. So this is an, it's an interesting tension there. You see them. Uh, that's why a lineage of apostolic succession is important because something other than scripture alone has to be used to discern the truth. That's the Catholic position. And the teaching authority of the bishops is brought to bear. The other, the other aspect then, uh, in addition to infallibility, is authority. So governing authority, okay? Bishops were appointed to geographic regions. Um, and a bishop then would, as he would die, would a, a succeeding bishop would follow in his place. And they have uh, records of that succession. Peter being the most significant and original apostle in Rome and bishop of Rome in their belief. If you want to turn to this passage, this is good. So this helps you understand the, uh, the origins of this Catholic belief. So if you go to Matthew... In chapter 16, 
as we're turning. Questions so far on that? So Matthew 16 and verse 18 and 19. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And here's the key verse, so to speak. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the uh, central text of this um, beginning of this apostolic succession, beginning with Peter and passed down through the popes of Rome. I'll read uh, a statement from Millard Erickson's Christian Theology on this topic. So in the traditional Roman Catholic interpretation, Jesus here conferred upon the apostles a special status of enabling them to define doctrine and convey grace. For example, by forgiving sins. We'll talk about that later with the uh, overarching issue of priesthood. So it is this grace that gives salvation or makes one a Christian. The authority to dispense this grace was transmitted by the apostles to the successors, a process that has continued to this day. So just in review, I don't want to spend too much time on views that we don't hold here at Candeo, but uh, essentials of the Catholic view, let's just say there's two. The apostles have ceased as an office. Ignore the possibly confusing apostolic secession term and um, understand that Catholic Church would teach that that office of apostleship has ceased in the church. However, interestingly, their doctrinal infallibility and ecclesial authority, they did pass down through an unbroken line of bishops. That's the Catholic belief. Their scriptural argumentation, we mentioned uh, uh, Matthew 16, also, 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, if you want to turn there. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Easy one to remember. This they see um, as a means by which uh, that mandate is given. Uh, to pass that infallibility and authority on to bishops. 2 Timothy 2.2, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The idea here is that Paul, the author of the book, is the first generation. He's the apostle passing on this uh, infallibility and authority. And then there's a second generation mentioned, which is Timothy who was ordained by Paul. And then in view is the men that Timothy would uh, lay hands on and pass on that infallibility and authority. So that's the Catholic view uh, on apostleship, at least as it relates to apostolic succession. Uh, I, uh, I enjoy a preacher, uh, speaker, author named Douglas Wilson. He has this to say in his aptly titled Papa Don't Pope, his book, Why I'm Not a Roman Catholic. He says this, if in order to offer the bread of life and the wine of the new covenant to our people, I have to be sure of the exact relationship between Clement and Linus, who were popes, bishops, and after, uh, and other early pastors in Rome, the people of God will starve to death. That's what he has to say on apostolic succession. But on a more serious note, he also has this to say, and this is interesting and something that we have to wrestle with a bit. So when it comes to issues of where do we find the visible church, so this apostolic succession the uh, Catholic church believes is evidence of the visible actual church, the real church, the true church, um, he goes on, there are two basic ways to address the question. So think about this carefully. The first is to argue for some form of succession, some form of succession. And the second is to argue for some form of restoration from the apostles, from Jesus through the apostles to the church. 
So the former option is taken by Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and also classical Protestants. Surprisingly to some, this is also the historic Baptist position. So apostolic succession is the historic Baptist position in a sense. The differences are found in how succession is to be recognized, he says. How it's to be recognized, measured, and noted, and not whether it is occurring or not. So the restorationist position is found with groups like the Church of Christ and uh, or other cultic edge groups like the Latter-day Saints movement. The idea here is that the true church of Jesus Christ fell off the planet at some point and after the apostle died and then had to be restored in effect from scratch. So that's the two, you know, you have to be on one side or the other of that equation. And if you find yourself on the succession side, then you, you deal with what it means what are the differences found in how succession is to be recognized, measured, and noted? Okay, one more thing. Uh, this is from Baker's uh, Dictionary of Theology. That the apostles founded the churches that perpetuated their teaching is clear, but the nature of this ongoing ministry is disputed. Okay? The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Ephesians 2.20, but the meaning of that phrase is uncertain. So another view, this would be this, the second view. This would be, uh, I chose to describe a Pentecostal and charismatic view. I put those together. And as a disclaimer, I recognize that there's differences in those terms. Uh, uh, but for a, a introductory survey kind of level thing such as this, I had to condense it. So Pentecostal charismatic view, we'll put those together. Um, it would be that restorationist view, okay? So this is from the Inter International Pentecostal Holiness Church, which is a, a Pentecostal church that um, is a historic denomination starting at the first of the 20th century. So here's their understanding of apostleship. Um, and maybe I'll write this down because it's helpful to think this way. I actually found this helpful to think this way as far as it goes. Uh, Pentecostal. Pentecostal Holiness Church understanding of apostleship. They have three levels, they say, okay? I don't know which side to write because I'm going to be in the way of somebody no matter what I do. But there's the first level. That's the foremost level. And then the foundational level. And then the third level is the functional level. level. Oh, I don't have to say level. Can you read that? So foremost, foundational, functional, and just real quick, foremost is, would be Jesus. He's the foremost apostle. He's the apostle of our confession, as Hebrews 3 states. Then the foundational level is those New Testament individuals that Jesus uh, called and um, uh, who he called apostles. That's the 12 plus Paul. Um, and there's three kinds of qualifications, so to speak, for those foundational apostles. Real easy to remember. They saw the Lord in the flesh after his resurrection. Their ministry was accompanied by signs and wonders. And they wrote New Testament scripture or were closely associated with someone who did. So that's the foundational apostles. And then functional apostles. So this is that include, what includes those lists of not the 12 plus one uh, that I mentioned earlier, okay? Barnabas and Silas and uh, the couples whose name I can't pronounce very well. Those individuals, okay? So those are functional apostles according to this Pentecostal view. Uh, but they include throughout the, ministry, the history of the church that there would be these individuals. And um, the key element is that, just like we looked at the, the basic definition of that Greek word, is that they were sent out, they were messengers, okay? So it's a functional definition. They recognize that not all of these individuals that they would call apostles, having been sent out by churches, uh, 
have any record of signs and wonders accompanying their ministry, but they also, they also promote the idea that it's likely that that is an aspect of their ministry. They would include church planners and missionaries um, in that category. So here's just a, a reflection real quick on my part. So far, these two views we've looked at uh, essentially both use Scripture to support their position. That's the attempt. But we move on to another view here which intentionally avoids or, or uh, neglects the use of Scripture in, in a very rigorous way. So this, this next view is, uh, is a view called, or is a movement today uh, called the New Apostolic Reformation. Who's heard of this? Okay. Really? Yeah. Just on Friday? Yeah. So how long do you think it's been around? Yeah, since, since Friday. So this new Apostolic Reformation apparently started in, the, in sometime in the 1990s. Okay, maybe in the 80s, depending on what you're pointing at. Uh, it's also called an Apostolic Prophetic Movement. Okay, and um, they're. I mean, I'll just jump to their kind of their key text that they use as their launching point, and it's Ephesians 4:11. If you want to have that open as we're talking about this view, that'd be great. So Ephesians 4, 11, 12, 13. And you'll see why it's their key text pretty quickly. But their view is, uh, a re restorationist view, uh, present-day apostles and pro prophets in their view, govern the church. Let's read that, uh, Ephesians 4, 11, And it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And if you were to read 1 Corinthians 12, 28, um, it even assigns a, an order. He gave first apostles, then, okay, and has a similar list. So they believe that that these prophets and apostles uh, of this um, list here, they give revelation today that's needed to set up God's kingdom on earth. And that's an essential part of their view is this kingdom now, this dominion kind of gospel that talks about setting up God's kingdom on earth today. They utilize even uh, the Lord's Prayer as a key text to say, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so they talk a lot about bringing heaven down to earth. And the apostolic role is essential to that. So the church government should be apostles and prophets, not elders, overseers, bishops, okay? Because that's lower in the list. Pastor teacher is last, okay? Evangelist is even before pastor teacher. They've experienced staggering growth. I've talked to many, many people that I did not know were, had adopted the, the views of this movement until I recently in the last month read about this movement. And it kind of made more sense that, um, yeah. Sorry, I'm just wondering if this goes along with it. I just found out about, there's like this test you can take. It's called like a five-fold test. Yeah. Does that go along with yeah. this movement? I just found out about yep. it on Thursday. So, and to so they use that, that term, fivefold, okay? Fivefold ministry um, of the church. And it's not exclusive to their movement. You will hear other people use that. I, I might have used it because I heard it sometimes or something like that. Yeah. Um, there are five things listed there. But um, yeah, that it's, it's essential to their form of church government. That, that you would understand how you fit into that yeah. and uh, not rise above your station, so to speak. So, um, you know, a station reserved for apostles, modern-day apostles and prophets. Yeah, and fivefold ministry, Ephesians 14, is the most central key text. The apostles, seen as, as, the apostles are seen as the highest position of authority. They're often referred to as generals.
going to keep moving. There's, there's a lot to talk about. Their, their um, theology is, is, um, has been labeled dominionism, although they sometimes don't like that term. Uh, and it has to do with Christ's defeat of Satan. They believe Christ defeated Satan through his death on the cross. And so now it's possible for the church to regain dominion of the earth. This is a post-millennial view, uh, which is a separate evening of equipping, I'm sure. But uh, traditionally, Pentecost it's interesting because Pentecostals who are also restorationists, but they are typically premillennial in their views. So this is a post-millennial view, believing that the church would bring about the kingdom of God on earth. All right, so scriptural argumentation, if you want to write down a couple references. I mean, I mentioned uh, the uh, lists in Ephesians 4, 11, and 1 Corinthians 12, 28. And of course, the Lord's Prayer, I mentioned Matthew 6 and Luke 11. But there's also these two key texts uh, that they use, Acts 3, 21. You can take note of in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 25. I'll write those down. Acts 3, 21. may have those turned to. You can read them to the group if you want. Uh, we can live with them. Um, <laughs> First Corinthians 15, 24. Yeah. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy And then Acts 3, 21. Heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about through his holy prophets from the beginning. So premillennialists, just to really flatten out this issue, um, make it black and white, would say that those texts refer to a future kingdom. Um, restoration and dominion, uh, and then post-millennials like uh, the New Apostolic Reformation believe that it happens through the activity of the church, and it gradually happens on earth. Um, yeah, there's more to say about that, but let's just review. Catholic view on apostleship, is there the office today of apostle? No. Catholic view? No. The office ceased, but the inerrancy and authority that were passed down from the apostles to the bishops still exist. And they argue that from Scripture. Okay. And then Pentecostal charismatic view. Did the office cease? Is there an office of apostle? I don't know if I made that very clear when I went through it. So the office ceased, generally, most Pentecostal and charismatic congregations. They would say the office ceased. There's no church office that exercises uh, governing authority and speaks with inerrancy. Uh, but miraculous signs do still, still attend the functional apostles. Okay, so that third level of apostles, functional apostles. And they also argue from Scripture. The uh, New Apostolic Reformation view, they say... The office was lost. They're restorationists. And they need to bring that office back. And it happened in sometime in the 80s or 90s. The prophet came first and then apostles. And so now the real church is governed by those people. And uh, you're under their authority or you're not in the church. And um, they do use scripture, as you can see. But uh, my argument would be there's much more inference um, and, and I think their argument would be that's fine because they're speaking with apostolic 
new divinely uh, appointed revelation. So they can, they can say, just as uh, New Testament authors re- reinterpreted Old Testament scripture in, in the fullness of the revelation of Christ, these uh, modern-day apostles in that view would say, we're free to interpret these like the Lord's Prayer and say with specificity that this is about dominion and restoration through the church because they're speaking with apostolic authority. So it's not a, as tight of an argument from Scripture. There's more inference because it involves fresh revelation. Interesting stuff, and it gives kind of some bookends to where we live and uh, what the Bible's, the biblical view is. But let's just talk a little bit about what the biblical view of apostleship is. So um, apostleship as an office, we've talked a little bit about this already, is directly commissioned by the Lord, and it has ceased. There's recognized 12 apostles plus Paul, and um, those, those qualifications are something that is an orthodox uh, belief throughout the history of the church. Um, first apostles, uh, the first requirement of, the, of those official office-holding apostles were that they lived at the time of Christ and were eyewitnesses, just to review. The second is that they were uh, specifically selected by the Lord or the Holy Spirit, in the case of Paul. Um, And the third is that they could do miracles. And again, the biblical view does include this category of apostles that don't hold the office of apostle, we'll say. Um, Functional is, is not a bad word for it. Uh, I tend to not use words from other viewpoints so as not to confuse people that I'm one of them, so to speak, or whatever, or that I uh, indoctrinated according to their views or something. But functional isn't a bad term to use. There are this, There is this category okay, of apostles in the New Testament, um, and, and they're not in the office of apostle. And this key text that the New Apostolic Reformation uses really deserves some attention because it is also uh, disagreed on in, in uh, probably us sitting here next to each other. Certainly um, there is some diversity in viewpoint even on the elder team itself on that, those five things and whether we think of them as all existing, apostle, uh, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, do those exist functionally in the church today or not? Um, there's some diversity, which I'll try to explain. So this is, there are two orthodox interpretations of Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. The first interpretation is that this text only refers to the first century apostles and prophets. And if you'll turn to Ephesians 2.20, which I mentioned earlier. That's a key text in this view is that the tr- um, I'll go back to verse 19. Um, 19b. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So according to the first orthodox view, apostles and prophets laid a foundation. And so when you read 4.11, that they were given, to equip the saints, verse 12, verse 13, until we all attain the unity of the faith, uh, that foundation still functions even though individuals don't, in a fresh way, provide that, uh, provide that ministry. Okay, so the foundation exists. The second orthodox view, and this is also an orthodox view, is that God continues to give apostles and prophets. Okay, 
for building up the church. They just don't hold a formal office or exercise authority like the first 12 plus Paul. Probably should include James in there too. Uh, again, these it, it's, it's suitable according to that second orthodox view to think of these functional apostles as church planners and missionaries and probably wouldn't be too long in, in our network to hear that terminology may be brought up that it, you know it could be compared to um, an apostolic kind of ministry as a church planner um, so <clears throat> there's diversity here at Candeo I would say uh, along those lines according to those two orthodox views and really the disagreement or the uh, tension at all would just be in in uh, what is pragmatically going to work the best. Just like I'm probably not going to use these three levels of apostleship to talk about my view because I'm just going to give someone the wrong impression. Then they're going to think I'm a Pentecostal maybe if they're familiar with the Pentecostal in this church. Um, I'm probably not going to call Paul Sabino an apostle even though I functionally think that's kind of he is being sent from our church, just like some of those non-office holding, non-one of the 12 uh, individuals. So um, that's within kind of orthodox belief, and it's certainly within uh, the views held here at Candeo. So I would say no matter the context, apostles are always sent ones. That's always true. But in some cases, uh, the Holy Spirit endows people with the ability to work miracles and signs and wonders in order to confirm the divine revelatory message they speak. And those times were when the New Testament was being written. Questions on that? When, so if the term apostle is used for like church planter, would that automatically assume assume that they're almost like a perpetual church, like they go and establish congregation and they leave from there, go and establish another one, and then is, is, is there a necessary transience to mm -hmm. that person if you're going to refer to them as an apostle as it relates to a church planner, or or is it more like uh, like they could be a church planner, but then they stop being an apostle and they turn more into a pastor uh, like shepherd and teacher, mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out what that, like how using the word apostle for a church planner would actually, uh, how that would be appropriate if they weren't continually yeah. in congregations in perpetuity. I think at its most basic definition, it could be appropriate, appropriate with qualification. So I think you could qualify it any any way you want to. And that's I think that's what people do. Sure. If they want to use the term, they qualify it. And they say whether they mean that or not. Gotcha. So, okay. But it, the, essential, the essential meaning of the word could be used, theoretically, if of anyone sent out from your church uh, as a messenger. Um, and I think we could have meaningful disagreements about whether it's the best thing to best term to use or not yeah, so yeah. Well, does that make sense yeah yeah uh, but some of those views no they would say it's perpetual I mean as long as the Holy Spirit's gifting remains on that person so um, yeah but not of those sort what else um, Zach when uh, talking about one who is sent who are they sent by you, you just mentioned yes. that you believe that a church could send mm -hmm. somebody out, but maybe like the original 12 apostles were sent by God or, you know. Yeah. Have you, do you have any insight on Yeah, that? so there's three, three levels for that, generally speaking. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have had an answer two months ago, but just reading as much as I could from different perspectives, there's agreement on this in any perspective I read, which is the first is sent out by God the Father. So if you look at Jesus, 
especially in the writings of the Apostle John, in the Gospel of John and in 1 John, and even, um, I think, in the Revelation of John, you might, I, I don't have a reference here, but I think I might have run across a reference. Um, but certainly in the Gospel of John and in 1 John, Jesus is said to have been sent by the Father into the world. Um, in John 20, significantly, he says, so, I, so send I you. And that, so that's one kind of apostle, the apostle, Jesus Christ of our confession. And then Jesus sent his 12 and Paul. And so um, that is the agent sending the office holders. And that's significant to the definition of these different kinds. Um, the other then is not well attested. Um, I mean, Barnabas and Paul sent out from Antioch, so um, uh, probably that's the reason. Yeah, from that from that body of believers there in Antioch. So I think that you know would be how we would conceptualize him being an apostle. Small A, if you want to. I mean, you know, whatever. Small A, capital A. Some people refer to it that that way. Those two that are like so Barnabas. Yeah, but from uh, from what I understand, I'm just speaking from not with a note in front of me. But the qualification is seeing Jesus after his resurrection. Right. So that would be more likely because there's like 500 or more. There's more than 500. So um, that you know, Barnabas could meet that qualification, and uh, I'm sure that there'd be people that argue that he's actual office holder, and that there's more than 12. That's significant in, in the revelation of John is that 12 are named. You know, it's described as the 12 apostles. So it kind of closes that loop and refers back to actual office holders. So the functionality of an apostle doesn't Like the little A. Yeah. The littlest A. <laughs> no, the, it, again, it's kind of like it, it requires qualification for any group to use the word and mean that and not mean signs and wonders because Pentecostal charismatic uh, kind of view would say they're not office holders. We don't govern our church necessarily. We have, elder, we have an elder board or elder team, you know. So, um, but we, we see them working signs and wonders in some capacity, they would claim. So, yeah. How would you dis distinguish the small a apostle from, say, the evangelist office? Yeah, the, uh, Philip is called an evangelist, and uh, I don't believe there's uh, any... Uh, testimony of him starting a church, standing up an elder t team, you know, like Paul, mm -hmm. and like Titus, who went to the Balkans, uh, Pontus, I think, um, from Crete too, and then he moved on. And so, like, he functioned in an apostolic capacity in the sense that I think he was setting up church polity, among other things. Like, that would be one distinguishing feature, I think. Yeah. Um, I thought I had a note. I don't remember where it is, but it, somebody explored this, new, or this uh, overlapping of roles with Timothy and Titus because they were elders, Right, so they're in that list of pastor teacher, but also they did function kind of in an apostolic way as well. So, and Timothy's referred to indirectly as an as an apostle. Um, 
First Timothy, I think it is, because the greeting says, uh, we could turn there. So we also ha have priesthood, which we we're not going to get to. But I'm glad we're asking questions because I didn't want to monologue for an hour. This is better than that. Uh, Jake will be covering the Melchizedekian priesthood. And um, I don't know if I can just give him my notes, uh, but uh, <laughs> or we could record something on priesthood general, generally speaking, you know, and just put that out there. Because we don't have time for it tonight, looks like. Um, First Timothy, Paul and Apostles of Christ. Well, that's two ten. Yeah, what am I thinking of? Uh, anyway, I don't think. I think Timothy is included in a group which Paul refers to as apostles, including his own self. I'll have to look that up. So, Shane, there's a spectrum for the elders and where they land. Um, apostle, maybe specifically for 11 Ephesians. So let me put you on the spot. So we just sent out Paul. Yeah. Uh, Give some language to how would you describe like Paul Sabino as he goes to Florida? Would you say he has an apostle-like gift, uh, the gifting of an apostle? Would you say, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Use some language or uh, or not, uh, nothing at all, or whatever, you know. Whatever. Well, uh, I mean, this is just me speaking for myself. Yes, so exactly. Yeah. I'm just not comfortable using that term sure. because I don't. I don't, first of all, even if I had a solid position that I, I mean, that I, I thought he was or wasn't or, or should or shouldn't be called that, and uh, if I understood, like if I had a paradigm for what apostolic gifting looks like, I mean, it's easier to say, I kind of know what teaching gifting looks like, but, you know, so even if I had a pretty solid view, I don't think I'd use the word because nobody's going to know what I mean, you know, but... Um, Can I add to that? Yeah. So I think that if you're looking for someone within the network to do that word term for, it would be Gary Pierce because he's not actually overseeing the church himself. Mm. He's planting a group of churches and establishing the polity that's that we're good. talking about. If you wanted to use it, Greg would be a better example. But much better example. Would you yep. I generally would view a missionary more as a herald of the gospel because they're sent out with the authority to establish the church, and that's the, what's different than an evangelist. Mm. Herald of the Gospel. Uh, t tell us more about that choice. A herald? So yeah. Like the, word, the word messenger that we're getting for the apostle, but it also is a herald. So like conceptually, this isn't just someone mm -hmm. with, sent with, here, can you pass this note to my grandma? This is someone that's coming speaking on the authority of behalf mm -hmm. of someone else. So the king would send his herald to another king with his message and his authority. So that is why the apostles are sent by God's authority to send out the message, just not just carrying a random message, but it's the authority of the hand. So you would use the word herald versus apostle? I mean, they're the same. It's just you're translating to English, so you're either transliterating apostolos or mm -hmm. you're coming up with the word that we used in English, which was herald. Yeah, that's really good uh, because a messenger could, could be a delivery boy, <laughs> you know, not even open the letter. I don't even know what it is. Don't, I don't want to ask, you know. Uh, or it could be someone who, you speak for me, you know. I, I'm giving you that authority. I did use the word delegate, which is closer. And then some use ambassador, which would be closer to. But Harold, I think, captures it probably the best. Harold Paul. Harold Paul. Well, Yeah, I don't <laughs> Well, you get like, I mean, I just feel like if you start using that word, then it carries with it a whole lot of different connotations. All of a sudden, you're mixed up with a movement you don't want to be mixed up with, or, you know, one of these other interpretations. Maybe this is where we want to land. Yeah. It may be functionally right to call them that, but it might be too confusing to call them that, is the way it seems to me. Yep. And like Mark said, it's a transliteration. I mean, you know, we could, if if the time comes where we need to, we could call baptism something different. 
that still describes what it is because somebody stole our word at some point, you know. So lots of things that. Let's also look at there's way. only one Apostle Paul, so it would be really confusing. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do want to just, we'll, maybe we'll close um, this part and. Um, I just do want to comment on Jesus, our apostle, the, the apostle of our confession. Um, yeah, it's, it's too bad that I'm not a better manager of time and know how to do this because the uh, Hebrews 3 there in verse 1, those terms are intended to go together. And, and it's, I would say it's, this reason I thought I was so clever because I thought I came up with this on my own, reflecting on that verse, and I thought, well, oh look how an apostle brings God to men, and look how a priest brings men to God, and mediates that way, and um, and then every commentator, everyone I read said the same thing, so at least I know I was right, but <laughs> I thought I was I was getting somewhere. Um, but that, you know, just reflecting on Christ's ministry, it is this full-bodied, uh, he takes ownership of, of all of those uh, gifted ministry throughout the history of redemption, and, and he now exercises those functions. I uh, hope we can cover that aspect of priesthood, you know, in the priesthood of the believer, and and how that's different than um, this idea that has crept in that the priesthood of belie- the believer means I don't need you or you or you or that guy because I'm a priest and I've got my Bible and I've got Jesus. You know, and it's this individualistic kind of mentality. Um, priesthood of the believers is is the body of Christ functioning together in all of its giftings and aspects. And, uh, and, and that makes a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Um, but Jesus, Hebrews 3, 2, says, was appointed by the Father. We talked about that. Jesus was, I would say, a walking, talking, living, dying risen and reigning, perfect revelation of God. He brought God to man, right? Um, Hebrews 1 describes that. John 12, 49. Let's turn to John 12, 49. That might be a good place to stop. Because of that, the idea of herald. Somebody can read that when they get there. John twelve forty nine. I'll read it. For I have not spoken, this is Jesus, on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So Hebrews 1, uh, that we heard preached recently, this exact impression, so it's a visible kind of ministry, and then John 12, this preaching, heralding ministry. Jesus is the chief shepherd. He's the ultimate authority of the local church. 1 Peter 5 uh, uses all the words we use to describe elder, elder overseer, and, pat, and then use the verb form of pastor, and, and describes Jesus as our chief shepherd or pastor. So uh, we're getting closer to like getting some of this for free. You know, like you, you do the hard work of studying some of these issues and themes, and um, then you read that one word in... Hebrews, and it means something that you didn't know that it meant before, and it means something about Jesus that is 
precious and, and blessed, and it's worthy of, of worship. So God's glorified when we get there as a church. Uh, we're thinking the right thoughts about God, you know, and, um, and it transforms us. It makes a difference. What we believe is what we do. 